I gotta, I gotta tell you guys something. I'm discovering right now in this unique season of my life that I'm not good at letting go of things. That letting go of something is incredibly hard to do. I, about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I had an experience that was unusual that showed me this. I was, uh, I was at Disney. We had a Disney World vacation, and we, we love, and our family, Disney, we try to go about every four or five years because it takes us about that long to save up to be able to go to Disney World with as many kids as we have. And, and so we were there, and it was the last day, and we're at the Magic Kingdom, and we're about to head out, and Virginia and a few kids are shopping at the Emporium right there on Main Street, and and I'm, I'm out in the rotunda area right before you leave the Magic Kingdom. And we're, we're waiting. And all of a sudden, I just something weird sweeps over me. And I see Virginia walking out with a few other kids. And, and we huddle up in a little circle right there, right there on the rotunda before leaving Magic Kingdom. And I just start bawling my eyes out, like weeping, heaving, uncontrollable, like shoulders moving. I mean, like super awkward weeping right there at the happiest place on earth. I'm, I'm just weeping my little eyes out. And I... It was, it, was, it was creating a scene. And, and to be honest with you, it freaked out my kids a little bit because I'm not much of a crier. Like maybe, you know, a small commercial or something, a little tear will come out. You know, like a good movie, a little tear will come out. That's about the extent of my crying. And, and especially like in a public place like, you know, Disney World. But here I am weeping, sobbing uncontrollably. And my kids, it, they were worried. They legitimately, they told me later on, they thought I was about to say, I only have like a few months to live. It's over. Because um, it was like that awkward for me to be weeping that hard. And, and praise God, that, that wasn't the case. But uh, it, it was this sense of something dying, something I had to let go of. And it was because I was struck with the realization, by the next time we take a Disney trip in four or five years, three of my six kids will no longer be living at home. Like the childhood that my kids have had, 18-year era was coming to a close. My daughter's entering her senior year. It's all going to be over. And the thought of letting go of my kids' childhood, like it was, I can't even tell you about it right now because it breaks my heart to think about what's coming. And, and I, I, know, I know what some of you who have been around the block enough times want to tell me. I, I, I can already see the look in some of you, your eyes, that you're empty nesters. You've been through it. You're going, Jason, Jason. Calmate, brother. Just calm down, man. It's going to be okay. I, I, know, I know it's hard, but trust me, it's a good thing. There are better things on the other side. You want to put your arm around me and say, Jason, listen, you're going to see them thrive. They're going to go off. They're going to discover their career. They might get married, start having kids. You're going to, you don't know how much better grandkids are than kids anyway. It's going to be amazing. And then whenever you become an empty nester, you're going to wish you had kicked them out years ago. It's going to be, it's going to be phenomenal. Jason, it's going to be okay. Just, just hang in there. And, and I want you to know, like, I, I received that. That's true, and I need to hear it. The only problem is it's clogged up right down here. It hadn't made it to here yet. And I know that, but I don't want it. I want what's been. I don't want to let go. And I promise you, in a couple months, when I'm driving home from dropping my daughter off at college, you don't want to talk to me for about two months because I'm going to be angry, moody, miserable, mean, because it's just so hard to let go. I don't want to let go. Letting go is hard. Listen, it's not just hard for me. Letting go is hard for every single one of us. And we all have things the Lord is calling us to let go of. There, there are some of you, it's like me, you're letting go of a child. Maybe it's that season two for you. You got to let them fly and it's hard. 
Some of you are letting go of a career you've always had and God is calling you to something else or maybe you just lost that job and now you're kind of floundering and you're going, God, I don't want to let go of who I was and what I did. Some of you are having to let go of a marriage because it's falling apart, it's broken and, and he or she is saying, I don't want you anymore and you've got to let go and it's so hard to let go. Some of you are letting go of a person that you love that is no longer here on earth that you're with. You want them to be here and it's so hard to let go and you can't. Some of you, it's a home, you're, you're moving, it's a community, you don't want to let go of them, and you, you're, you're clinging on. Sometimes it's a possession, sometimes it's a person, it can be all kinds of things, but every single one of us has something we struggle to let go of, and letting go is really hard. But I think we need to talk about it, because here's what the Lord wants to teach us today. It is not until we let go of what is old that we can open our hands up to receive what is new. There are so many of us, and we have our hands clenched around something that we refuse to let go of, and God is trying to put something in our hands, and he cannot until we open up our hands to him and let go. And then we can finally receive from him. And God wants to give us blessings that we know not of, and we'll never receive them until we open up our hands to him. That's what God wants to teach us today in the book of Exodus as we continue our journey in the second chapter. So get, grab your Bible right now, if you will. Go to the second book of the Bible. You had Genesis, then the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 2. Now, we're, we're continuing what, what we were looking at last week because the book of Exodus is just one long story that has part after part after part to it. So I'm going to give you a recap of what we covered in chapter 1, and then we'll move on to chapter 2. So back in chapter 1, verse 7, we learned that God is a promise keeper. He said to them, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will be fruitful, you will multiply, you will become a mighty nation. And now it's 400 years later, and by the time you get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, they are fruitful and multiply, they're filling the whole land of Egypt. God was faithful to fulfill his promise. But last week, we also learned that hell itself fights against the promises of God. Remember, I, I told you that, that the devil does not want God's people to receive God's promises because they might praise God, and he doesn't want that. He wants to praise for himself, so he fights against us receiving the promises of God, which is why a lot of times we don't see or feel the promises of God fulfilled. But if you remember what I told you last week, we learned from the two midwives that when we fear God above anybody else, then we stay true to our faith and we get to experience the power and the blessing of Almighty God. That was last week. Now we're going to see how God does make good on his promises and how he's going to fulfill them specifically through a person. And we're going to get introduced to a man named Moses. But first we hear his birth story. So Exodus chapter 2, first two verses. Listen to what it says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Okay, I'm going to stop there. If you're looking at your Bible, just know what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to give you some commentary, read a few more, give you some commentary. Because many of you have read the story, but there's so many details you've missed. So right here at the beginning, we're introduced to three different people. A Levite man. You won't find this out until chapter 6, verse 20, but his name is, is Amram. And he marries a Levite woman, and her name is Jochebed. And they have a son, and you're going to see in a few verses that his name is Moses. So we're introduced to these three characters, and you think it's going to be about Moses, but the beginning part of the story is really about Jochebed, about Moses' mother. And we have to hear her story because she's going to have to exercise extreme faith because she is about to have to do the hardest thing. Because she, she gave birth to a son at the absolute worst possible time to give birth to a son. Now, I skipped over a verse last week. I'm going to go back to it in a second. Before I do, though, let me remind you again what took place in chapter 1. So... 
there's a new Pharaoh. He doesn't really care about what Israel's done. He's scared of Israel because there's so many of them. So he tries to oppress them, but they keep multiplying like bunnies. They're, just, they're all over the place. So he tries a new tactic. He calls these two midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys that are born to, to control the slave population. When that doesn't work, he comes up with a brand new tactic in verse 22. And this is the environment in which Moses is born. Let me read that for you. Exodus 1, 22. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So his new strategy is, it didn't work with the midwives, so I'm getting all of Egypt involved. Any Egyptian, if you see a Hebrew boy, you throw him into the Nile, you kill him. In order of mass genocide, this Pharaoh, he is just done with these Israelites. He is going to control them, and he is going to find a way to make it happen. And here's his mechanism, mass murder. And it's into this environment that this little baby boy is born. And here's Jochebed, and she has this boy, and she says, i got to protect him. And so she hides him for three months. It, it actually says that when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. If you read the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it says when she saw he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. There are some versions that say when she saw he was handsome, she hid him for three months. I, I've always struggled with that. Like, that sounds so shallow. You know, if he'd been hit with the ugly stick, she would have been like, nah, that's all right, you can take him. But because he's handsome, well, I better keep him. Like, how messed up is that? But let me go ahead and, and, and assure you that is not what's taking place. Jacobet is not that shallow. It's a very subtle thing that you don't see in the English, but you understand when you read in Hebrew. There's a word used there. It's the Hebrew word tav. It says when she saw that he was tav, she hid him for three months. Now that word was used also in Genesis chapter 1. It means good. It said, when God created the heavens and the earth, he saw them and they were tav, they were good. And then it says he created the, the ocean and the land and he saw that it was tav. He created the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and he saw they were tav, they were good. Over and over and over, created male and female, he saw they were very tav, they were very good. It's this idea of creation. And I told you this last week, I want you to keep seeing this theme throughout the book of, of Exodus over and over and over. It comes back to this creation account. Last week I told you in chapter 1 verse 7 when it says they were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. That was the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 when he told male and female be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And now you have this moment. She looked at the child and she saw the child was good, was tav, and recognized him as a valuable part of God's creation, bearing the very image of God. Now, the author of this book, which Exodus is written primarily by Moses, when we saw the, this particular aspect of it, he was pointing out a theological truth. That this creation, this little boy, was made by the hands of God, and therefore God himself would defend this little child. Because he was tough. He was good. And the reason he wanted to teach us that truth is because Jochebed was about to have to come to a crisis. If God created it, him and he was good, then God would fight for him, which meant that Jochebed couldn't do it. She had done what any mama would do. There's a threat to my child who's tough, who's good, who's created well, and I want to protect him, so I'm going to hide him for three months. The only problem is Jochebed did not have the power to keep her son safe. You're going to read as we go on, it said when, when she could no longer hide him, there was going to come a moment when she couldn't hide him and he was going to die. And therefore, she was going to have to do the hardest thing of all. She was going to have to let go of her son that she loved so much. 
And she's going to have to say, God, I'm going to have to trust you to control this thing. I can't control it. Now, I, I want to I pause right there for just one moment. Because I believe there are some of you right now, and you're in this room, and God is going to call you to the exact same thing. There's things that you're trying to control right now. Just like Jacob was trying to control the situation. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to take care of my son. And there was going to come a moment when she had to say, you, i got to relinquish control to you, God. There's some of you right now, and you have a situation. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a marriage issue. Maybe there's something going on in your life right now. There's something going on with one of your children. And you're trying so hard to control it. And what you don't realize is you'll never, you, you never were in control anyway. You're not going to be able to control it. You've got to let go of it and give control to God. And that's really hard to do. It was hard for Jochebed. Because when you let God control, he's going to call you to do some crazy things. And that's exactly what happens in verses 3 and 4. Listen to what happens next as we move on to the story. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And then she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, again, stop, stop there for a moment. So now you have Jochebed, and she knows she can't hide this baby, so she puts him in a basket and sets him in the Nile River. Now, I'm curious, how many of you have seen the, the movie Prince of Egypt? Any, any of you in here seen that movie? Okay, yeah, uh, probably, most of you probably have seen it. So if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, then right now immediately your mind goes to this little baby in a basket going down like class five rapids through the Nile and just all alligators come in and all this kind of craziness. And there's a side where you go, what kind of psycho mama would put their baby in a class five rapid down the Nile River? It just seems like ludicrous to do that. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. This is not the actual account in the Bible. You think the biggest miracle is that somehow miraculously the little baby made it through this class five rapid and ended up somehow right there where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, but that, that's not the way it happened. It said that she put the basket among the reeds and left. Now, when you put a basket among reeds, it doesn't go anywhere. It's stuck in the reeds. She placed the basket precisely where she wanted it to be because she knew that Pharaoh's daughter would go there to bathe. The way it worked back then, Pharaoh owned portions of the Nile because he owned pretty much all of Egypt. And there would be a common place that Pharaoh's daughter would go to every time she would bathe because the, Niles would, the, 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 the reeds in the Nile would give her privacy. No one could see her bathing over there. So she would always go bathe in the exact same place. And so that means Jochebed took this basket and put it precisely where she knew Pharaoh's daughter would see it. That, that was her move. So she didn't put him down in a class five rapids. She put him wherever... Pharaoh's daughter would find him. But this is pretty much just as crazy if you stop and think about it. Because this is the daughter of the man who just said, if you see a Hebrew child, kill him. And Jochebed puts this Hebrew child right where the daughter of this madman would find him. But the reason why she does it, though it doesn't tell us this exactly, in the language you can see it, is because somehow, someway, God had told her this was his plan. This was her trusting in God's plan to save this child. You go, where do you see that? I didn't see it. Well, it's because you didn't look close enough at the wording that was used. So if you go back to verse 3, it says that she took him and um, put him in a basket made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. You read the word, I'm reading it from the English Standard Version. You read the word basket, and you, you have in your mind what that is. But it, in Hebrew, the word is a tebach. That's the word that's used there. There's one other story in the Bible that uses that word. It's used nowhere else. It's in Genesis chapter 6. When God tells Noah to build a teba of gopher wood and to cover it with pitch, it's the ark. 
So it's saying right here that she built an ark and she covered it with pitch and she put her child in it. Now that wording is very specific because remember the story of Noah. In the story of Noah, God came to Noah and said, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you're going to be saved. Let go of your trust in yourself. Build this crazy boat when there's no rain. Cover it with pitch. Get everybody in there. And that's how you're going to be saved. And now you come to Exodus chapter 2. It has echoes of Genesis all over it. And it's written the same thing. Build a little bitty ark, cover it with pitch, and put your child in it. And trust in my means of salvation. So by doing this, she is putting her son in God's hands, not her own hands. God had told her, I know this sounds crazy, but build this little ark, put him in the water where Pharaoh's daughter can find him because you're about to see what I can do when you give control over to me. It was a sign of remarkable faith for her to do this. But let me go ahead and tell you a truth you need to know. When you trust God at that level, God shows you what he can do when he has control. And verses 5 through 10 of Exodus 2 show you God's incredible power. Listen to what happens next. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now stop there for a moment. Did, did you just hear what happened? She gives up her baby, and she ends up getting paid to nurse her own baby. Like That's crazy that it would work out that way. And then not only that, she ends up giving to deliver this child over to live in the household of the very man who would order his death. And he gets protected by the very man who sought his murder. He gets to, he gets to be raised as Pharaoh's own, his own grandson at that point, Pharaoh's daughter's son, with all the rights and the privileges of the royal family. He grows up with the absolute best education. It would be like a Harvard education because the Egyptian family, the royal family, got the best of everything. He got to eat served by servants on a silver platter every single day of his life. Went from Hebrew slave to royalty because Jochebed said, I release him to you, God. What's so crazy is that God's name is nowhere mentioned in all that took place. But you cannot read this story and not see God all over this. God's sovereign hand controlling it when we release things into his hands. But did you see how it happened? Here's what I don't want you to miss. Jochebed would have seen none of this had she tried to hold on to her own son. She would have likely seen the death of her son had she held on. It required her letting go, saying, God, I'm not going to try to control this. I trust you. That's when she saw the power and experienced the provision of Almighty God. I got to point this out because here's what I want you to hear. I believe God wants to bless so many of you in this room. God wants to bless those of you watching this. God wants to bless those of you because you need the blessing of God. And God is a good God. And you are not going to experience his blessings until you say, hear God. I give it to you, God. I'm not going to control it anymore. I'm not going to cling on to it anymore. I give it to you, God. That's when you'll experience the power and the provision of Almighty God. You got to let go in order to grab onto it. And I want to remind you what I said at the beginning. Sometimes letting go is really, really hard. It requires faith. 
Requires faith, it required faith for Jochebed to let go of her baby. It's going to require faith for you to let go of whatever it is that you need to let go of. It also required faith for Moses to let go. Because as the story continues, you're about to discover that Moses himself had things he had to let go of. And if he didn't let go of them, he was never, never going to discover all that God had for him. Now we're going to fast forward 40 years by the time we enter the next verse. If, if you were to read later on, go read Acts chapter 7. You, you hear some background on this, but it tells us that 40 years passed between this moment when he was born to the next scene that we have on here. So he's 40 years old. And listen to what happens to him as he learns of what he needs to let go of in verse 11. He says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay, stop there. God, we just went James Bond right here, man, killing people and burying them. It's just like this stuff's in the Bible. Like this, this stuff really happened in the Bible. But what, what I want you to see in that is really just how wild it is that Moses is stuck between these two places of being a Hebrew and Egyptian. Remember what I told you a second ago? He's 40 years old, which means he has lived 40 years, four decades of his life in one place. He is thoroughly Egyptian at this point. I mean, he's, he wears Egyptian makeup. You're going to see later on that when he goes to the land of Midian, the people see him, they think he's Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He puts the eye makeup like an Egyptian. I mean, he looks and acts Egyptian. For four decades, all he's known is the Egyptian way. He's been, he reads hieroglyphics. He's been trained by Egyptian lore. He, everything he did is thoroughly Egyptian. I'm 44 years old. He was basically my age. That's all he's ever known was the Egyptian way. Now, I don't know how and when this happened, but at some point he discovers that he's a Hebrew. Now, I, I don't know if he knew that like he'd always been told his adoption story. I don't know if he thought he was an Egyptian and one day found out that he wasn't, like Pharaoh's daughter told him. I, I don't know when this took place, but at some point before he's 40, he discovers that he's actually a Hebrew. That's why it says he goes out to his own people to look on their burdens. He knows he's a Hebrew being raised in an Egyptian home, but he doesn't want to give up Egypt because that's where all his privilege comes from. That's where he gets served. That's where all his, his entitlement comes from. His identity is Egyptian. And he goes out and he sees one of his natural born, his bio people being roughed up. And then he discovers something in that moment. There's this innate desire in him to rescue. He can't even explain it. There's just some impulse in him. He wants to do something to help. He, he sees injustice and he wants to fight against it. What he doesn't know is he has a calling upon his life by Almighty God to be a rescuer, to fight against injustice. But he's just discovering it. But here's the problem. He's so Egyptian he does it the Egyptian way instead of God's way. What does he do? First thing he does is he looks this way and that. He sees a guy and he kills him. Power and violence. That's how he tries to solve the problem. That's the Egyptian way. What did Pharaoh do whenever he had a slave population getting too big? Power and violence. I'm going to kill all these babies. That's how we're going to keep peace in our world. The Egyptian way was the way of power and violence. And you see Moses right there living it out the Egyptian way. Kill a man, bury him. Of course I get to do this. I'm the grandson of the Pharaoh. I can do whatever I want. But Moses was about to discover that as long as he was Egyptian, he would never become the redeemer that God had called him to be. As long as he was holding on to his identity, God couldn't give him a new one. 
And so it came to a moment when God said, you're going to struggle to let go of this, so I'm going to force it. And that's what happens in verses 13 through 15. God forces that identity to be ripped out of him. Listen to what happens next, verse 13. It says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, well, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Okay, stop there. So here you have God ripping out everything Moses has ever known. Now, there's, there's a few things taking place in here that you, you need to make sure you see because they set the stage for the future. Th these things are, are foreshadowing what's going to come. First thing you see is his own people rejecting him. The, the Hebrews, the Israelites, their first comment when he tries to help is, who do you think you are? Think you're the prince and judge over us? Get out of here. And that's going to happen over and over and over to him. Read the book of Exodus. See how many times they grumble and complain and say, why'd you bring us here? Why'd you rescue? You should have just left us alone. They were going to grumble constantly. And right here, Moses is getting a little foretaste of it. There's a second part of foreshadowing, though. He gets rejected by his own adopted grandfather here. His grandfather turns on him immediately and tries to kill him. And this is foreshadowing what's going to keep on happening in the future. Over and over and over again, the Pharaoh is going to reject him. Now, it's not going to be the same Pharaoh because you're going to see in chapter 3, there's a new Pharaoh, likely the old one's son, which means this is now the new Pharaoh is Moses' uncle, and he's going to turn on him over and over and over again as well. He's going to come and say, let my people go, and the Pharaoh's going to go, okay, no, never mind, I, I changed my mind. Be plague after plague after plague, and he's going to keep turning his back on Moses. So these things right here are setting the stage of what's going to happen to him. But the most important thing you saw in those three verses is God's tactics. He said, Moses is not going to give up Egypt, so I'm going to rip Egypt out of him. Because he knew that one day Moses was going to stand before, before the Pharaoh himself, and he was going to say, let my people go. Let my people go out of Egypt. And God knew that, that Moses could never ask Pharaoh to let the people go until he let Egypt go out of him first. He had to let go of Egypt. He had to let go of his identity. He had to let go of his entitlement and his position all his wealth, he had to let go of it all before he could step into who God wanted him to be. And what I said before, I'm going to say again, letting go is really, really hard. If you were to read the book of Acts chapter 7, you would see it actually took him 40 years to let go. Another 40 years between the story we're in right now and chapter 3 when you get to the burning bush. But in the next few verses as we close down chapter 2, I want you to see this, these initial moments where finally Moses is beginning to let go. Moses is finally giving up his Egyptian identity. Let's finish up verses 16 through 22. Listen to what it says next. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the, of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So at this point now, and I'm going to leave the last few verses of chapter 2 into next week because they set the stage for chapter 3. But in, in this moment now, you have Moses in a foreign land. All he's ever known is Egypt. All he's ever known is privilege. He was spoiled, entitled, everything served to him on a silver platter. 
and he goes into Midian, and immediately he's faced with a very similar situation that he was back in chapter 11. I'm excuse me, back in verse 11. He sees injustice, and there's this thing welling up inside of him. Like I told you before, he wants to do something about injustice. He sees a wrong, and God has put a calling upon him to fight against it. God has put a calling upon him to rescue. And so he sees the seven daughters of Ruel, and he says, i got to do something. But notice how different his response is than it was back in verse 11. This time, no one dies. He doesn't go to power and violence. He, told, he chooses a totally different tactic. He comes up and he defends them and he shoes off the shepherds. And then it says he watered the flock. Now, I guarantee it. You read over that and went on, didn't give that a second thought. You have no clue how massive a statement that is that he watered the flock. Because you've forgotten just how frou-frou Moses really is in this moment. They, they say, this some Egyptian dude just helped us out. They say that because he is dressed in all his fancy Egyptian garb. Think about every scene and picture you've seen of Egypt. That's exactly what he looks like. I mean, dressed to the, he, he's from the royal family. He has the best of everything. He's got no calluses on his little girly fingers. I mean, he, he's never done a hard day labor in his life. He's never had dirt under his fingernails, except that one time he killed a dude and buried him. That was the only time he got dirt under his nails. But other than that, he'd never done a hard day's labor in his life. And now, if you remember the Genesis series, I told you this, but to the Egyptians, sheep are an abomination. And anybody who works with sheep, you, you should not touch them, be near them, or you'll be defiled. They are the lowest of the low. And here is Moses, thoroughly Egyptian, and it says that he goes to tend the flock and waters them and touches them and, and works to them, gives water to sheep of all things. What this little statement, when it says, and he watered the flock, shows us is Moses is finally letting go of all his Egyptian pride. He was so entitled. He was the royal family. He had every, everybody looked up to him, and now he's down, and he's low, and he didn't think he's better than anybody else. He humbly saves, and he humbly serves. And what you see is the beginning moment when he's letting go of Egypt. There's another person who had to die and be buried, and it was the Egyptian inside of Moses, and he is slaughtering and burying that person in him. And he's beginning that 40-year journey of letting go of who he used to be to become who he should be. And here's the best part about it. Because he let go of his Egyptian identity, we are still reading about this dude over 3,000 years later. If he had kept his Egyptian identity, you would never know his name. And now, because he let go of what was to grab a, a hold of what God wanted to give him, we know his name because he rescued the people of God. He saw the miracles of God. We named children after Moses because how phenomenal it was of who he became because he let go of what was less to grab a hold of what was more. This is what I want to teach. This is the secret sauce of faith right here. You want to know how faith works? This is how it works. It's very simple. Let go of what's less to receive what is more. You have a God who's all powerful, who is perfectly good, who loves you, knows all things. He wants to bless you, but you got to let go of what you're clinging on to so you can receive something more. This is what drove Moses. What drove him to let go of all his entitlement and pleasure and wealth was he believed it was going to be worth it. You want to know how I know it? The Bible tells us that. I want you to flip to the opposite side of the Bible. One last verse and we're going to be done. I want you to, or last few verses, go to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, it's almost the end of the Bible, end of the New Testament. Go back a few books past the end and you'll find the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. 
If you don't know Hebrews 11, this is a great chapter of faith. I want you to see what it says. It, it gets us into the mind of Moses here. In verses 24 to 26 in Hebrews 11, listen to what it says. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Why did he give up the wealth of Egypt, the pleasures of Egypt? Because he was looking to a reward, something better. He knew that whatever he let go of was not going to be comparable to what God was going to put in his hands. And he let go of it to get something more. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I, uh, I struggled with Hebrews 11, too, for a season because it said that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth or greater uh, in treasure than all the wealth of Egypt. And the first thought that hits my mind when I read that is, how does Moses know about the reproach of Christ? Like, you tell me Moses knew about Jesus Christ when this happened some 12 to 1400 years before Jesus came to earth? But this is where I learned a lot when I, when I was detailing out this passage. When it, when it says the reproach of Christ, it's not saying Moses knew who Jesus Christ was. It says he knows what reproach is. The same reproach that Jesus experienced, Moses experienced. So what's the reproach of Christ? The reproach of Christ is the shame and rejection that he received, the same abandonment of position and wealth and power and entitlement when the second person of the Trinity comes to earth to be the illegitimate son of a peasant so he could go to a cross and die for the very people spitting in his face. That's the reproach of Christ. The, the book of Philippians chapter 2 says it very poetically. It says that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't cling on to equality with God. Though he was God and had the power and title, it says that he let go. He didn't regard it as equality with God to be grasped, but he released that, and he took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the reproach of Christ. To be God Almighty, infinite in power, every title above, to release it, infiniteness, to take on finiteness, to come on earth for the very sake of being murdered. That's the reproach. That's what Moses was going through, giving up his Egyptian title, position, privilege to take on a lowly servant role. He knew the reproach of Christ. But just like Moses did Jesus, he took on the reproach of Christ because he knew there would be a reward for it. That there was a moment when he was in heaven and the father said to him, my son, I want you to go down to earth. I want you to take on flesh. I want you to take on finiteness. I want you to go down there for people who aren't going to love you, who are going to scream for you to be crucified, and I want you to do it. But don't worry, my son, there's going to be a reward. And Jesus says, all right, Daddy, I trust you. And he comes to earth, and he goes and he experiences the reproach of Christ. And because of it, you and I, if we were to keep reading Philippians chapter 2, would know how the end of the story goes. Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now in this moment, Jesus gets the title Lord. Up until that moment, only the Father had the title Lord. But when he is obedient, it says the Father bestows upon him the name that is above every name. Not the name of Jesus. He already had the name of Jesus before he was obedient. Is the name Lord. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he was obedient, when he relinquished his rights, the Father placed upon him the name that is above every name, the name Lord, so that everyone would worship him and praise him. It was worth it. Jesus gave up what he had because God was going to give him some, so much more. It was for the reward. 
Now, here's why I'm teaching you all this theology. I believe God wants to give you something. There's a reward up for faith, but you will never receive it until you let go of what you're holding on to. I believe you can't even dream of all that God wants to give you. Maybe you're watching from home right now and you don't think this applies. It applies to you, every one of you, within my voice right now. God is saying to you, I have blessings that you can't even conceive of. That if you could just compare what I want to give you to what you're holding on to, you, you, would, you would release it in a, a heartbeat. But you can't see it, so you're holding on to what you think is tangible. And God is saying, let go of it. Trust me. i got something so much better for you. Look, I don't know what it is right now you're holding on to. But I know you need to let go of it. Maybe, like I said, maybe you're like me. It's a child you don't want to let go of. Family member, a friend you don't want to let go of. And God is saying, would you let go? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a situation you're in that you're trying to control. And you need to let go of control right now. Maybe it's an identity, who you used to be. Maybe you used to have a certain job. Maybe you used to live in a certain place. Maybe thought, people thought of you in a different way before and you're struggling to let go of that identity and to step into something new. You wish you could go back. And God is saying, let go of that. I have a new identity for you that's so much better. We have baptized 149 people over the last two and a half months. 149 people who've said, I don't want to be who I used to be. I want to be somebody new. And there are many of you. I can look around the room and see some of your faces. And there's always going to be a desire to go back to who you used to be. That's going to look a little better. And God is saying, no, you got to let go of who you used to be. I want you to be somebody new. i got a new identity for you. i got greater things for you. I don't know what the Lord wants you to let go of. But I just have a feeling, as I was praying around here on Friday morning, I have a feeling there's many of you. And God is calling you to let go. And I want you to respond to it. So I'm going to, I'm going to invite the band to come out here. And we're going to have a chance to respond. And here's how we're going to respond. One of three ways. And I believe many of you, probably the majority of you, need to respond in one of these three ways. For some of you, the way you need to respond is in a moment I'm going to have you stand up. And you're going to need to think about what that thing is. I've been praying the Spirit would reveal to you what that thing is that you need to let go of. That situation, that person, that possession, that whatever. And I'm going to want you to have your hands out in front of you clenched like this as a sign that you're admitting you're holding on to this. And then in a moment of faith... I'm going to want you to open your hands and say, Lord, I release this to you. I release control to you. I release this person to you. I release this situation to you. I release it to you. And I want you to, be, I want you to have this as a sacred moment where you're saying, God, I give it to you. I'm going to trust you can do more with it than I can. Many of you may need to do that. But there's a, there's a second group of you that I think need to take a step further. In a moment, we're going to have pastors and others who are going to be down here ready to pray with you. And I think there may be some of you, you need to do what Jochebed did. You need to put your situation, your circumstance, your issue in the ark and say, God, I want you to deal with this because I can't deal with it. And the way you're going to do that is by being prayed over by somebody else. This is you saying, God, I entrust this into your hands, just like Jochebed did, just like Noah did. This situation is more than I can handle, so I'm not going to try to hold it here myself. I'm going to put it into the ark, into the basket. I'm going I'm to have somebody pray over me to release this to God. I believe God may want to show you his power, but it's not going to happen until you are prayed over, until you release it to him. Listen, we have anointing oil. In obedience to James chapter 5, there are some of you who need to be anointed with oil and prayed over because you need physical healing. That's you putting your health in the basket, saying, God, I trust you. Maybe you have a relation issue, a health issue, another issue, financial issue, something going on in your life work issue and you need prayer 
This is you putting it into the ark, saying, God, I trust you, being prayed over. So I want to encourage you to do it. But there's one last group, and I, I, know, I know there's some of you in this room that fit into this category. There are some of you, and you're here, and you're so sick of being who you are. There are some of you, and the weight of all the mistakes of your past and your sin and your shame, there are, there are some of you going, why, why am I even here on this earth? Why am I even alive? What do I bring to this world? There are some of you overwhelmed thinking there's no fresh start, there's no new chance. And what God wants you to do today is he wants you to let go of all your past, of all your failures, of all your sin and addiction and shame and brokenness. He wants you to let go of it because he wants to put a brand new identity over you. He wants to put the identity of child of God upon you. He wants to ransom you and rescue you and give you a reset button to say all the past is gone. You're a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. But the old you is going to have to die and be buried, just like the Egyptian and Moses had to die and be buried so a new person can be resurrected. I have a baptistry up here on the stage. Those of you in the room, I know you can see it. This baptistry is a picture of that. The old you going, I need that person dead and buried, and you go under the water, and that old me is gone, just done away with, and a new you comes out of the water with a brand new identity as one who is saved and held by Christ Jesus. No more sin upon you. No more shame upon you. Today can be a brand new day where you discover who you are in Christ Jesus. But it's going to require you letting go of everything. Letting go of your pride. Letting go of your fears. Letting go of your past. I hear it all the time. Well, well maybe when I clean things up in my life, then, then I'll go get baptized. I've got a few things i got to clean up. That's not how it works. Christ cleans you up. Then you walk in holiness. The first step is to say, God, I give you my life. I let go of what was. I want what you have to give me. I place my faith in Jesus for my salvation. If that's you, then you're going to come up here and tell one of us pastors and say, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to, to turn away from my old life and find new life in Christ. I'm ready to be baptized. We have shirts. We have shorts. We have counselors. We will get ready. And you can be baptized today before we leave. But you've got to respond. So I want to ask everybody to stand up right now. And I'm going to invite our pastors and prayer team to come forward down here to be ready to pray over you guys. Let me remind you of three things. One, it's the hands clenched, you open up to him. Two, your situation, your need, you put it in the ark. You let somebody pray over you. Three, you want the old you to die. You want a fresh start. You come let one of us know that you're ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized. And we'll do it today. So I don't know how the Lord's moving, but time, it's time to respond. So as we sing this song, get your hearts ready. I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper after the song.